Fast Talk. Street Talk. Talk Radio. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on the world headquarters of Common Sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Let me tell you, there is plenty to go at today. It's only Tuesday, but the process of government is already running into the escape lane. Last night, the House of Lords did what you might expect an unelected chamber of elitists to do when asked to vote on something the vast majority of hardworking people in this country want. They voted against the government and against the clampdown on the maniacs from Insulate Britain, who have now been given the green light to continually disrupt business, stop people from moving freely around the country and glue themselves to the nearest stationary object. If it was down to me, I'd just leave them there uh, and then pull them off when it was good and stuck and see what happens then. I don't think they'd be back. Naturally, the highly privileged and cosseted peers of the realm, of whom there are now almost 800, don't think we should interfere with the right of a bunch of hippies to wreck the smooth running of the country. But the truth is, the police aren't really doing their job, are they? If they did, there would be no need to bring in new laws to make it easier to arrest the climate change maniacs. Or at least that's what they said in the House of Lords. We've already got laws to cover it, so there's no need to put a new law in. Unless, of course, you want to put a new law in for misogyny, which is what they've also done. Apparently, misogyny is now a hate crime, given that no one can seemingly define what a woman actually is. How the hell are we going to police what a hate crime against a woman is? 0344 499 Up first, we've got Andrew Bridgen, one of the Tory MPs who's delivered his letter of no confidence in the Prime Minister. We'll ask him why he's done that, what he makes of the latest outburst from Dominic Cummings that uh, Boris Johnson lied to the House of Commons, and whether there are any black ops emanating from Downing Street, uh, which might be or might be not being employed against critics of the Prime Minister. Laura Dodsworth is also here with her take on the House of Lords voting down the government's crime bill last night, and she'll also be trying to explain to me precisely what a misogynist hate crime is. Can anybody help me? 03444991000. Also coming on later, we've got Dr Steve James. He's the consultant from King's College Hospital who confronted Sajid Javid recently with his view that he doesn't want or need the COVID vaccine despite working on the NHS front line because he's already had it and he thinks he's got antibodies. It was a very controversial subject at the time. We'll find out what this has done to his life and how he has been affected by it. If you've got any questions for Dr Steve James, by all means send them in to us on Twitter at Talk Radio. Uh, we'll also be talking royals with Kevin O'Sullivan, the rise in anti-Semitism in some Islamic communities in Britain where the Dallas synagogue terrorists emerged from. And we'll hear from LaDonna Harvey in California on the White House and its plans for what to do about Russia and Ukraine. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you doing? What are you being told? Even Piers Morgan this morning has come out and said, could it be we're nearing the end of the pandemic? Well, could we? I've been saying it for a while. You're listening to the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there's so much to talk about this morning. I'm not sure, as I often say, whether three hours is going to be enough. But we'll do our best. We'll move on as swiftly as we can. We'll try not to bore you to death with anything tedious. Uh, We won't be talking about the tsunami in Tonga, simply because we've got many, many other things to be talking about. But it is quite a remarkable series of events, which we may talk about at some time down the road. First of all, let's say a very good morning to Andrew Bridgen, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire. Andrew, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I guess we've got to start off, first of all, Andrew, uh, with the front page of The Times. Cummings, the Prime Minister, lied to Parliament about the party. He's basically saying that he's got evidence which he is willing to back up uh, with affidavits and all sorts of swearings under oath uh, that Boris did know that it was a party, that he was warned that he shouldn't let it go ahead, that he went ahead with it anyway. uh, And therefore, having lied to Parliament, he's now in breach of the ministerial code. 
Well, they're very, very serious allegations. And um, I think I've already stated that, uh, that Sue Gray needs to um, interview Dominic Cummings, anybody else that he puts forward as a, a witness for this. Um, and clearly someone's not telling the truth. Uh, Dominic Cummings' um, version of events completely contradicts what Boris Johnson has said. And both of them can't be telling the truth. And uh, if it does turn out that um, Boris Johnson has misled Parliament, that that is a pretty cardinal sin, um, and in my view, would be career-ending in, in its in itself without mm. everything else that's been going on. Um, I think the bad news for the Prime Minister is that um, a couple of journalists have told me they've got several people who are willing to uh, back up what Mr Cummings is saying. So um, the Sue Gray report. I don't know if it'll ever finish, Mikey. She seems to have a bigger workload than when she started a week or so ago. Well, that's right. I mean, it seems as though there are, and you kind of have the sense that there's probably a party going on at least once a week, possibly twice a week, possibly five times a week, um, that we're sort of going to run out of, of, of space to, 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 to log. But at the end of the day, um, surely the point about Dominic Cummings is that if he's making these serious allegations and nobody's taking them seriously, does it mean that his own influence has kind of waned because he's been going on about this for such a long time that he's kind of lost his luster, if you like? I don't think so. I mean, I mean, clearly, Dominic Cummings is a strategist. He's got a grid uh, and he's l releasing bits of information uh, over a timeline. Um, it's something he's been pretty good at in, in, in the past. Um, to be honest, Mike, I think it's, I find it a bit pitiful watching the prime minister being buffeted around by events as they unfold and, and these constant revelations every day or every other day. It's a bit like watching a, a, a cat playing with a mouse. Mm. Um, and I think Boris Johnson's the mouse and uh, we all know how it ends up at the end, don't we? <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the big dog comes around the corner with a hammer or something, doesn't he? But I don't know who that is. Oh, yeah, it's Boris Johnson. Um, but the point about the whole issue now uh, is that we've got a prime minister who was flailing about yesterday, making all sorts of promises to bring the Navy in, uh, to sort the migrants out, which he should have sorted out a year ago, uh, to, to sort of defund the BBC. You know, all these policies that an awful lot of those of us on the, on the perhaps writer side of conservatism were asking for anyway. Um, and he's now doing it because he thinks it might save his, his skin, which is kind of yeah, uns unseemly I, I find, for a prime minister. I, isn't it? I, well, not just unseemly. I find it a bit patronising, actually. Uh, actually, Mike, yeah. it's like it's like trying to pl placate the children with some sweeties. Yeah. The fact is that their sweeties they already promised the children, and uh, he, he's had it in his pocket for some time. So you know why now? Mm. And, and I mean the flurry of uh, policy statements uh, from every single government department. I mean, it's clearly coordinated across the, the whole of government. It's almost like a Christmas tree of, uh, of, of presents uh, for everybody. There's something there, there for everyone, but it, it doesn't detract from the fact that what I've seen unfolding from the evidence at number 10 of the parties during lockdown is that it appears to me that we've got a prime minister and a, a close clique around him who can do what they want during lockdowns and the rest of us have to do as we're told. And mm. that's just not acceptable, Mike. Well, it's not, not acceptable to me. It's not acceptable to you. It's not acceptable to the, to the average UK citizen and it should never be acceptable. And, and what that isn't, it isn't 
that isn't levelling up, is it? No. It also knocks a massive hole, does it not, Andrew, in all this nonsense about following the science? Because clearly uh, nobody died, as far as I'm aware. Nobody got particularly ill uh, as a result of these parties that were continually going on in Downing Street. And I take that uh, to include Boris Johnson, because we're talking about after he came out of hospital, he seemed ready to go back partying again. And so clearly nobody inside of Downing Street making these rules, listening to Chris Whitty and, and the rest of them, believed a word of it. <laughs> And that is much more damaging in the end, long term, uh, to what everybody else had to do, not least those people who lost their businesses. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, I think Sage has taken a real battering. Um, I don't have a, there's no doubt in my mind, if, if 101 Conservative MPs hadn't rebelled in December, um, we would have been in a lockdown over Christmas. And even the Plan B um, measures mm. were completely unnecessary. And what we've seen in the UK is that. Um, devolved governments who took more stringent measures actually had a ended up with a higher rate of COVID than England, at which you know, the, the, we're, we're going to be out of this COVID situation if we want to be um, by the 26th of uh, January. That's an end of it. Um, no more restrictions and all the COVID emergency powers need to be given back. Mm. And the vaccine passports have to be done away with and masks have to be done away with in schools. And, we well, can... and, and, they, didn't, and they never worked anyway. No. Tell me where vaccine passports have ever worked in the world. I mean, it's, um, I don't know. I think I think the Omicron situation was, uh, I think I predicted five weeks ago, was actually a straw man for the Prime Minister to be seen to be knocking down. Mm. Yes, and I think it, that might well be right. Man, the, the problem is that, that the uh, the £6 billion worth of lateral flow testing, we did four times more testing than than Germany, twice as much as France, it didn't affect how many people got the uh, the variant. It was mostly for 99.9% of people, it was a cold. Mm. Um, with the £6 billion we spent on that and the damage we've done to our economy, those Plan B measures probably cost the economy about £30 billion. Yes. That would have paid for uh, huge help for people uh, with the cost of living crisis and would have built us to reverse the national insurance cuts um, increases for April straight away. Yeah. And we'd be ahead of the pack, ahead of the uh, the rest of our competitor economies, and our economy would be booming even more than it is booming. Yes, exactly right. And there's already now another four to five billion being written off by the Treasury uh, in these kind of loans that were given out, furlough money that was handed to people who were fraudulently uh, claiming it. And it seems to me that the whole system um, was creaking and nobody was really checking on it. And they've just basically given up. And meanwhile, if people were given stand-up loans and people were given um, those booster loans to just try and keep them going, they're now being harassed by HMRC to pay them back. Well, I did report there's, uh, there were some shenanigans over these loans to business during the lockdown. I mean, it's only anecdotal, but I've spoken to a number. And the luxury car um, showrooms... They had record sales during lockdown, Mike, when most businesses were curtailed. And that's just that's that's quite an interesting. Uh, um, it's it's very hard to see how there's, there's a link between that, apart from the fact that government had given huge amounts of money out to businesses. Mm. It just... certainly wasn't. It certainly wasn't to buy a new Lamborghini or a Ferrari. No. It? Exactly right. So you're one of the Tory MPs that have written to um, uh, Graham Brady, the 1922 committee chairman. Um, not very many others have. People are saying, why is that, Andrew? And, and what was the sort of tone of your of your letter? Um, well, I, I just think we're heading in, in the wrong direction. And I think these constant uh, 
Um, I, I predicted that the, uh, the the constant revelations about what's been going on in Number Ten they haven't stopped. Um, as Pat McFadden from the Labour Party, you know, belatedly uh, got onto the, the the correct issue. The, the fact is that the Prime Minister really can't function as a Prime Minister because of the uh, the constant scandal that's swirling around him. It's also affecting the government's ability to function. I mean, you know, Beijing Barry, Barry Gardner, £425,000, he'd been bunged by a Chinese yeah. spy for years, had the, had the Chinese spy's son working in his office right. for years, and um, barely a mention because the government's got its own problems. And that means that makes the, the whole position untenable for the Prime Minister because ultimately it's not about him, it's about about doing the right thing for the country. And yes. that's what we need to get back to. And that's just impossible in the current environment because the government's just buffeted from one scandal uh, and, and having to deny this and deny that and add that to the list of, of items that have got to be investigated by Sue Gray. And that's not what we're here for. We're here to look after the interests of the people, not to be constantly looking after our own backs. Yeah. No, old Beijing Barry's house looks like something out of South York, doesn't it? It looks like something that you'd have built with well, an awful, you know, awful lot more money than an MP could afford. But, I mean, what well, can I say? The, the, the socialists always make pretty good capitalists in my... Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, my other, I mean the, other, the other problem for, for Gardner and going after Gardner, of course, is that apparently he hasn't done anything wrong. Apparently he's allowed to take a load of money from the Chinese government, you know, which seems bizarre to me. Yeah, I mean, you know... Why do they why do they target Barry Gardner? I mean, I think Greg Hans has put out information saying that uh, as um, the trade minister, uh, the shadow, uh, Barry Gardner was getting confidential reports yeah. from government about how negotiations were going with various various countries. Um, and I'm also told <laughs> that the ceramics uh, manufacturers in the UK um, probably gave Barry Gardner a report about all the things in the trade deal they didn't want. That would hamper their trade uh, with with China. So he, the Chinese probably saw our hand before we negotiated. Yes. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's it's unbelievable. It really is. Uh, it is incredible. Now, a couple of things I want to ask you about, uh, specifically specific to you. Um, one, there was a piece in the Times yesterday which looked to me an awful lot like the sort of prime ministerial uh, dirty tricks department uh, trying to smear you. Do you think the fact that you've asked for his resignation? Uh, is in any way connected to them accusing you of taking cash from a firm in Africa? Well, I mean, the timing uh, is pretty good, isn't it? Um, I walked in yesterday morning to the tea room quite early and there was a, a colleague of mine who uh, was an MP, he's now in the House of Lords, and I won't mention his name, and his opening gambit was, they're not even subtle, are they, Andrew? They don't even <laughs> wait a couple of days. Um, what's, the, what's the story? The, the story is uh, a company with uh, a sales department in my constituency approached me they got problems with the inland revenue they grow trees in Ghana the biggest plantation of UK owned trees in West Africa um, I think so it's 17,000 acres of, uh, of teak trees mm. have been planted over the last eight years they couldn't get any help to get them verified obviously as soon as you mentioned trees in Africa there people think it's a tax some sort of tax scam um, they won't get any cooperation from anybody uh, they said look, if you want to go out there and see the trees, we'll demonstrate all this to you. So I went out there, declared that, that expense to go to Ghana. Uh, I had a meeting with the uh, Ghanaian Forestry Commission who showed me all the logs of all the trees, the areas of land that they'd used, all um, degraded former rainforest. Um, I saw the hundreds and hundreds of Ghanaians they were employing on the plantations to cultivate the trees. Um, 
the crash they'd built for the staff, the medical center and all the, all the good stuff. Um, I then had a meeting with our high commission in Accra with the business attache and he was fascinating. And I asked him, why have I had to fly to Ghana to help? A, 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 bear in mind that the sales from mere plantations are classed as UK exports because mm. it's, it's a foreign, it's based abroad, but it's a UK company. So those count as UK balance of payments positive. 160 million pounds a year of sales for our balance of payments, exports. Yeah. Of, and um, I said, why haven't you gone up there and seen these trees and verified it for the inland revenue? Why have I had to fly up all the way from UK? And the... Uh, the business attaché told me that he hadn't got a budget to to go because it's you you have to fly out of Accra, you have to fly to uh, Kamasi, a uh, little, little internal flight. Then you've got four hours in a Land Rover, not on roads, to get into the bush to see where the the plantain. He said he hadn't got a budget for that. So I said, well, there's not much point you being here, is there? If, if you haven't got a budget to help the, one of the biggest companies in West Africa that's owned by a British company, I'm paying tax in the UK. And quite interestingly, after that meeting. Uh, I, I went to we had a we went to a restaurant in Accra um, that by their standards would be quite expensive. And about 15 minutes after we had arrived there, the uh, the business attaché from our high commission <laughs> turned up with a big gaggle of people. So then I questioned him if he'd got a budget to uh, to 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 be there, and he said he assured me he had got a budget. For oh that. well, that's fine. So you've got that to so when, I, when, so when I got back to the UK, I rang uh, um, Andrew Stevens, the Africa minister at the time, explained to him what had uh, what had been going on, and their uh, inaction in the High Commission in Accra, and uh, I'm pleased to say that there was a, a movement of personnel. Yes, well, that's very good to, to know. And so the piece in The Times, which accuses you of taking cash from a timber firm, is not necessarily untrue, but there's nothing nefarious about it. It's not true. I, I took a trip there and declared it. Right. The headline says, our MP took cash from, uh, from a timber company. Right. That's, that is completely untrue. And if you read the article, what happened was that six months later, a business in my constituency gave my association a £5,000 donation before the general election. That's yeah. perfectly normal. That is not to me. That's to my association. It was only, I think, a week before the general election. Our expenses were already paid for the, the general election. That money went on local elections last May that, uh, that meant that we won every seat in the uh, county council elections right. in my state. Yeah. So, I mean, as I say, it doesn't seem to be a particularly relevant story. It's a strange time for them to run it, strange time for, for uh, Number 10 to put something like that out. I'm also hearing, by the way, Andrew, that there are some Conservative associations which are being pressurised um, around the country not to um, sort of, shall we say, rock the boat too much, not to try and put letters in, not to uh, get their candidate um, to go anti-prime ministerial. Is that uh, possibly true? I imagine that's. Um, that, that, I imagine that every lever of power to keep the prime minister in position is being deployed. I don't think it'll wash with my association. I think they'd come to a conclusion uh, many weeks ago regarding the suitability of the prime minister to to continue. And I think the shocking uh, poll out, I think, was this morning, is that um, that fifty percent of the people who voted Conservative in twenty nineteen, effectively supporting Boris Johnson now think that he should go. Mm. Um, no wonder, you know, the question is, you've got 70, probably 70% of people in the in the country overall think that the Prime Minister really ought to stand down, but we can't get 15% of Conservative MPs to put letters in. Yeah, 
That's an extraordinary state of affairs. Uh, you've got quite a good record on this, haven't you? Because every time you've put in a letter of um, no confidence, the person who you had no confidence in inevitably left. Yes, it's a hundred percent so far. <laughs> we'll, we'll try. We'll try. We'll try. We'll try and keep it at that. But I mean, that's that's the reason for that is because that was the right thing to do, and ultimately right. that had to happen. Right. Um, we have to be ruthless because if, if we if once our, our our leader is a liability and not an asset. I mean, we can't risk the alternative to a Conservative government is always going to be a Labour government at the moment or a Labour coalition with the SNP or or some other motley crew. And uh, I just don't think we can uh, expose the country to that level of damage to our uh, social fabric and our economy. So we have to be ruthless. And, and let's face it, I mean, Boris Johnson got in by we had to remove Theresa May. You know, he, he knows the rules of the game and... Um, was it those who live by the sword will surely perish by the sword? You would have thought so. And as far as uh, just a bit of local kind of uh, action is concerned, last night in the House of Lords, um, the crime bill was pretty heavily defeated, not particularly surprisingly by the likes of Peter Hayne uh, and some green baroness whose uh, name is Jenny Jones, who think that it's an absolute outrage to uh, to in any way stop active, insulate Britain from uh, bringing Britain to a standstill. Um, is it dead and buried, this thing now? No, we, 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 we can um, we can force it force it through on ping pong and the, uh, the and the Parliament Act that we do have precedence over over the House of Lords. Ultimately, um, anything that's in our manifesto, we can we can force force through uh, through Parliament, even if the Lords object to it. Well, let's hope you can, because they seem to think that the police have already got enough powers to deal with insulate Britain, but they haven't got enough powers to deal uh, with misogynistic hate crime. So we need new laws on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly the uh, the House of Lords seem to be leading the uh, the woke agenda. I mean, most of my colleagues despair of it. I mean, we don't, we, we don't uh, we don't see any legislation that authorises any of this, but it's sort of a uh, it's just a constant flow of a direction we're moving in, mm. and it, you have to paddle very hard just to stay where you are all the time. Um, and the moment you relax, we're moving in the wrong direction again. Um, and, and clearly, the House of Lords you've got to bear in mind the government does not have a majority of peers in no. the House of Lords. One thing that Nick Clegg did during those coalition years of uh, 2010 to 2015 is he packed out the House of Lords. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's over 100 Liberal peers yeah. and con considering what, what percentage of the votes they've got in the country and how many MPs, it's completely disproportionate. Mm. And they, they can do a lot of, of damage and, and blocking of, of legislation. Of course, they're they're not standing for election. They're, they can never be removed. These these people are here for life. I know. It's absolutely staggering what's going on in the House of Lords, but that's another conversation for another day. Andrew, listen, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Andrew Bridgen, MP, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire, a man talking an awful lot of sense this morning. Uh, and also just saying, for all of those people out there who go, oh, it's just Boris bashing. It's not Boris bashing. He's now been accused by Dominic Cummings, a man who should have known better and who was there at the time, uh, of basically lying to the House of Commons. If that turns out to be true, uh, he has broken the ministerial code which is a resignation issue uh, he cannot continue with this nonsense of flailing about coming up with new policies every single day to try and make people like him a bit more that's not how you run a country it's ridiculous isn't it this is talk radio independent talk talk news talk talk radio the independent republic of mike graham with the self-appointed revolutionary of reason mike graham on talk radio
Good morning. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on the world headquarters of Common Sense. And let me tell you, uh, we've been searching around for some Common Sense. We've had some. Uh, we're going to get some more in this hour. Laura Donsworth is here with us. Uh, I've got a lot of questions for her, not least uh, what exactly is a misogynistic hate crime, because I'm very confused as to what that is. Uh, I'm not that sure about what a hate crime is, to be honest, in the first place. But to put another word in front of it to make it even more complicated and less um, sort of, you know, wide ranging seems to me to be a little bit difficult. The House of Lords argument last night in the crime bill situation was, well, the police have already got loads of rules that they can follow. They've got plenty of laws that they can enact and they've got lots of powers that they're not using properly. So we don't think we need to give them any more unless... Of course, it's about hate crime against women, in which case we definitely have to give them more laws so that they can clamp down more on more men who hate women, which apparently now is illegal. So it's bad news if you got divorced and you hate your ex-wife because apparently you're now committing a crime. You'd better give yourself up to the nearest police station and let them clap you in irons and lock you away for a very long time until you learn to like women because that would be much better for everybody. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, 03444991000. Laura's looking at me like I've gone completely mad. We've got a doctor coming in uh, who challenged Sajid Javid over the vaccine mandate. Uh, It's very interesting to see how he has been treated over the course of time. Dr. Steve James will talk as well um, about the general kind of um, anti-lockdown fervour now, which seems to be sweeping the country after a series of parties in Downing Street. For those people who think that we're all going after Boris Johnson because we want him out. No, actually Boris Johnson the longer he stays in, the better it is for people who don't want to ever see another lockdown because he can never impose another one because he'll just look completely and utterly idiotic. It's that simple. 0344 499 1000. Kevin O'Sullivan coming up a little bit later on. And we might be talking about Prince Andrew, who apparently has five toys in his bed, including a teddy holding a heart, a teddy with a necklace, a cuddly black panther, a squishy grey hippo, and another hippo on a green blanket. Okay, fair enough. No wonder he's no wonder he's not getting the Jubilee Medal. <laughs> but I don't think that's the reason, to be honest. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. You listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Laura, very good morning to you. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Did I go a bit far there? You were looking uh, at me sort of with a oh, quizzical I, look. Well, I was just wondering where we're going to go when we get on to misogyny being a hate crime, because that's, yes. that's going to be entertaining. But I've got to say, when you just said Prince Andrew's got five toys in his bed, yes. those were not the sorts of toys I thought you were going to be talking about. <laughs> well, I was going, maybe oh, it keeps Prince the other Andrew. ones hidden, you know. Um, maybe. I mean, it's just an interesting... I mean, I always used to have a rule of thumb, and I don't wish to give too much away here, but if you sort of went out with somebody and you went back to their house and they had cuddly teddies and things on the bed it was always a bit of a no-no for me it was always a bit kind of that's a bit weird I've never come across it haven't you no right well you wouldn't would you because you wouldn't expect a man to have a teddy on his bed but I mean quite a lot of women do yeah not the sort of toys one would be looking for on a bed um no no, but it's a very early morning show, this, so we probably yes, best not to explore on, that. So moving, moving on. swiftly well, on. Well, you know what? Let's talk about some really good news yeah, at go the on. moment. Okay. Come on. I feel like, in general, there's a lot of chest beating yeah. and hand-wringing about what a terrible nation we are, what a terrible, ignominious history we have. Oh, yes. I think it's really ridiculous. Mm. It's, it's boring. It's tiresome. It's also actually, not true. It's not true. We're tolerant. We're decent. We're compassionate. We're also quite resistant. And we're also intellectually rebellious. Yes. We are an island nation and we mm. should celebrate it. We should. I think at the moment there's quite a lot of examples of really amazing people power going on. Yes. And I thought we should do a little bit of roundup of some people power. Because you were talking it. about the wave of anti-lockdown mm. feeling at the moment. And that's part of it. That's 
not all of that's not all of it because some of it's just there's so much um there's so many good things going on at the moment um let's start with the together declaration yes so the together declaration is a group of just grassroots people um and this is great you know it's set up by the people for the people and it's calling for an end to all of the lockdown restrictions the mandates and the passes mm. and they delivered a petition with 360,000 names on it to number 10 Downing Street yesterday yes excellent mm. that just shows what people can do you know yeah, I no... saw Tonya was down there because she sent me a little message um, and introduced me to somebody that's involved in the um, anti-vaccine mandate you know situation with the NHS a nurse who will hopefully get on later this week um, um, Lily Beth I think her name was I can't remember for sure um, anyway we're going to get her on because they they are part of a sort of um, 85,000 strong workforce in the NHS who don't mm. wish to lose their jobs which I think seems entirely um, respectable and yeah. a completely normal position to hold isn't it? It really does and we're coming up to that deadline very soon so one thing the Together Declaration has done which is brilliant is give a voice to mm. different people in the NHS who are about to face the loss of their jobs, talking about why they didn't want the vaccine, how this impacts them. So I think that's really impressive. Well done them. In a very short space of time, they've rounded up over a third of a million signatures, which they've delivered to Downing Street. Another thing, Big Brother Watch. Now, they're quite a small human rights organisation and they pack well above their weight. Yeah, we talk to them quite a lot. Yeah, they punch above their weight. I'm really impressed by them. So, I, I mean, I support them. And they've been running quite a wide and long-ranging challenge to vaccine passports, but they've now mounted a legal challenge in Wales. Hooray! Good. We don't talk about Wales enough, I no. think, here in England. No. You know, they've, they've had masks forever. And it's not going well, is it? I mean, all of these restrictions that Drakeford put on them just before Christmas had no effect. In fact, they did worse than Britain, uh, than England did, rather. Yeah, absolutely. So and you're while, going, what, why? And while we're hoping that... Plan B will be pulled back on the 26th of January in Wales. It's in England. It's not in Wales. No. So that's or fun. Scotland. No, or in Scotland. But um, anyway, Big Brother Watch got a crowdfunder if you want to support it um, to challenge COVID passes in Wales. But I mean, talking of that, you know, they are fighting um, legally and with parliamentarians and public awareness in in England as well because. Although we're being told that Plan B might be rescinded on the 26th of January, Sajid Javid did actually tell Parliament that you'll no longer be fully vaccinated unless you're boosted. Yes. Um, Do you and not that think that'll all disappear after a while, be free. I hope so. I mean, I hope so. I mean, the trouble is you look around the world, you look around Europe, and apparently you... I mean, I'm quite encouraged um, by the fact that the only Grand Slam tennis tournament that Novak Djokovic can now play in is Wimbledon. You know, which means that we are the only country, really, uh, which is free to those people who don't wish to have a vaccination, which I think is brilliant. However, yeah. the rest of Europe is still actually going the other way, isn't it? I mean, in France, I think they're making the uh, the vaccine passport even harsher. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, great reason to be really proud mm. to be British. I it's think good so. to be patriotic and be it proud is. to be British. So, yeah, hopefully it is all going to go away after the 26th of January, but it doesn't happen on its own. Where would we be if there wasn't a human rights organisation like Big Brother mm. Watch? If there weren't people like us in the media providing a different perspective? Yeah. And if people weren't organising and signing petitions and writing to their MPs? Yes. It happens because of, because of us. Yes, I mean, it one of the things I, I mentioned power. earlier this week is that the people who were all banging the drum about how you know ridiculously out um, out outrageous we were here at talk radio for calling uh, and questioning the uh, prime ministerial instructions and the sage kind of advice um, have all gone very quiet because it now appears that the people that they were backing 
and the side that they were taking didn't even take it seriously. And you have to say that if in Downing Street they were doing what they were doing, not only did they think they were better than we were, but they weren't frightened of anything. They were not in any way worried that mm-hmm. if they had a social event that somehow they might get COVID and die. Yeah, well, But that's what they were telling us. We are living in the time of the great in retrospect and the great backpedal and the time of the great mudslinging is just beginning. Mm. But some of some of the things that, that you and I have said all along are now proving to be correct. Yes. How people come round to that when they come round to mm. it. It's all a movable feast, yeah. but everyone's everyone's gonna get there. And that's the thing about about Partygate, because what it did first of all is expose hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is a very useful hook in politics. It really Nobody is. likes unfairness and hypocrisy. No. But then the next stage in that thinking is but why were they being hypocritical? Mm. Because they understood their risks. Yes. Because they understood it wasn't as frightening as they were telling all the little people. Yes. Well, when the, that it was. when the woman who's running the COVID uh, vaccine task force, or the COVID task force, whatever it was called, has a leaving party inside her office with a load of people um, who, if they were outside of uh, Downing Street, couldn't have done that, you go, well, you weren't really scared of the, the consequences, were you? Exactly. They understood the risk and they were prepared to manage it individually and responsibly, yeah. which was correct yeah i'd say that was correct because there was so much that was ridiculous you know that it was all right to go to a supermarket but somehow you couldn't go to a pub where you could be further away from people you know it was all right to go on a tube train um but you couldn't actually go uh, to a theater i mean you know there's, there's no logic to any of it really and i think mm. as time goes on we'll 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 realize that uh, some of us always did, and some people will realise it more mm. and more as time goes on. But, you know, we've had a lot more pushback in the UK against draconian COVID rules than in many other European countries. So I think it's a, it should be a moment to take stock and be proud of ourselves. Everybody who has pushed back against zero COVID hysteria mm. should be pleased with themselves. Yeah. This is people power. Um, more on people power. Just a small thing, but I've just cancelled my Ocado account. I know, this sounds like such a to middle be fair, class, it's not as good as it, It's not as good as it used to be. Ever since they left Waitrose and went to Marks and Spencer's, it's just not as good. So I've, I've set up a Waitrose one to, as well for my yeah. online shopping. But you know why I've done it? The reason I've done it is that Ocado, along with a few other big retail giants, mm. has cut sick pay for the unvaccinated. There's a lot of this going on. Yeah, so if you have COVID, it's the same company, sick pay. But if you have to self-isolate because of COVID-19 exposure, mm. you're getting statutory sick pay, not company sick pay. So they're treating the vaccinated and the unvaccinated differently. That's discrimination. Right. I was shocked because I've used Ocado since mm. they started right. and I really love Ocado and I honestly can say their telephone service their delivery service everything has been faultless yeah. but I cannot support a company no. that does that because the people of- who are being asked to isolate are only being asked to isolate because the government says they should it's not their fault it's not like yeah. something that they have any power over is it it's really unfair so it shows that I mean they're really putting profits before people and cutting corners on a section of society that's really being marginalized by I'd say quite a dehumanizing narrative yeah. in the media it's not acceptable i won't support them i cancelled my account i've asked them to delete all my Mm. data i'll never use them again Mm. i mean i hope they change their mind and they listen um they sent me a very polite email saying that well the customer service person who's unvaccinated said he didn't feel discriminated against probably has to say that though well he probably isn't one he probably isn't unvaccinated and he probably two uh he's just been told that's what we say yeah. You know, I mean, unfortunately, I'm that cynical. I don't think, uh, you know, whenever I hear people offering up that kind of excuse, mealy mouthed or otherwise, you just go, really? Are you? Cynical? Are you? You? Yeah, I know. Me? Ridiculous, Would isn't it? Would we be? So presumably this means that you're in favour then of the old Lib Dem peers voting down the crime bill. 
because uh, you want people in Slate Britain to have the freedom to go and disrupt okay. everybody's life. All right, this is really We could have a row now. Well, this is really We've never complicated. Had one of those. We'd never have a row. We would have an enjoyable, stimulating debate. Indeed. And we would chink with our glasses at the end would. of it and go, hurrah for debate. Of course. We can call it an argument if you want. Right, let's have a Barney. Go on then. No, I um, <clears throat> I know that you've got a different view on Insulate Britain to yes. me. I mean, you did say something I would say was quite outrageous at one point. You said you'd like them to lose their back, their passports and their and their bank accounts yes. for gluing their faces to the road. Yes. I think it's important to protect the right of everybody to protest. Now, yeah, but they're not protesting, you see. My point is, is, if you want to protest, that's fine. You walk down the street with a placard. What you do not do is cause an obstruction, uh, which inevitably leads to the dereliction of people being able to work properly and impinging on other people's freedom. You can demonstrate without doing that. There are already laws to um, yeah, but, well, deal with some but, of nobody's... the most egregious protesting Yeah, but behavior. nobody's doing anything about them. So when they keep breaking the law and the law seems in, uh, un, you know, unable to stop them, because they would literally be released from the police cell and they go straight back to the M25. Seemingly, they were doing that with impunity and there was nobody who was seemingly able to stop them. I have more of an issue with how the police police different protests yeah. than the powers they have to do so. So opposition peers voted last night against a range of measures in the police, crime, sentencing and courts bill. Another reason this is complicated for me is while I'm talking about people power today, mm. I don't really fundamentally agree with the House of Lords. Right. They're unelected people voting on our laws. Yeah. I don't like that. And on there's the other hundreds hand, of them. Sometimes they do us a big favour like last night. Mm. So I want to celebrate what they did while also saying I'm actually a little bit on the fence about the House of Lords. Mm. I don't think it's fundamentally democratic it's definitely to have not democratic. unelected peers. And especially not to have it packed full of people who otherwise, by representation uh, in the elected chamber, are way overrepresented, i.e. the Lib Dems, because Nick Clegg put loads of them in there when he was in the government. Mm. Um, and they have a far bigger overrepresentation in the Lords than they do in the Commons. There's no good way to have a group of unelected people. They should all be elected. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Second chamber, definitely elected, like America. On the other hand, you know, they have <coughs> dealt very nicely with a bill that Amnesty called an assault on our freedoms. Well, that means it must be the right thing to do if Amnesty are calling it an assault on our freedoms. All right, we are as one on Amnesty, but <laughs> they, I think they really did the call this right. Um, now... Baroness Williams did defend the bill, saying that it would the powers would only be used when necessary mm. and where reasonable. But who would have got to define that? Well, the Secretary of State would have done, mm. or the police. It put far too much discretion and power in their hands. But isn't that the way it is already, though? Because the police, as you were saying, react very differently depending on who's demonstrating. And so surely the police operational people are the ones that make that decision on the day. Yeah, but it would have been worse because what it would have... Um, it included a term, um, serious disruption to the life of the community. Well, how do you define serious disruption? It wasn't defined. Um, and I don't think something like that should be at the discretion of a politician or police. It should be defined very clearly in laws. So some of the key wins last night for the, for the House of Lords, the peers voted against locking on. I expect this is something that you probably would have liked them to vote for. Yes. So that's locking yourself to things to, right. to obstruct. Um, I mean, it seems to me that if you've locked yourself to something or padlocked yourself to something, the police are perfectly within their rights to get some kind of an angle grinder and just go, and just unhook you, no? Why can't they do that? I'm not clear on what their exact powers are right now, but it would have it would have made it illegal to even do so, to even, you to know, even sorry lock about on the, in the uh, first place. Sorry about the sparks. 
you know. <laughs> you are mean. I'm not. Um, if you want to glue your hands to something, that is quite a, a, a dangerous thing to do. And my belief is you should just pull their hands off. Well, it is, it is, quite, it is quite mental. And I, I have to say, part of me has been a little bit suspicious about how much Insulate Britain's activities have been amplified by the media. Was there any sense of amplifying their barking mad irritatingness in order to help push this bill through? Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it hasn't worked. I think the problem is, is that we're dealing with a bunch of people who have used in the past methods which we seemingly are foxed by and that the police don't seem to know how to deal with, right? And therefore we've ended up with situations where individual motorists have had to drag them out of the way because the police won't do it. Mm. And if, you, if you're in that kind of anarchistic world, then the rules are clearly not working. Yeah. So but whatever you might say about the police's powers, they're not doing the right thing. But one thing is the police, you know, I'm sure we saw similar footage of the police standing there explaining very kindly in a very measured way to insulate Britain and also to Extinction Rebellion about how they would be policing them and, you know, trying to gently lead them out of the way. That is not what I saw at anti-lockdown protests, for instance. So there's a kind of moral license we grant a certain sort of protester. So people that protest about climate, for instance, that's considered morally yes, acceptable, well, why virtuous. Why? Well, partly because we are so censorious about everything that we never have the yeah, other side of the debate. about all, but it is the most important thing. I mean, I heard Peter Hayne this morning banging on about it, saying, you know, well, of course, the reason why this is like the suffragettes is because it's such an important issue. Well, really? No, it's not. It it's, really isn't. It's because we've stifled the other side of the debate. And so I would say that we need more debate and more protest, yeah. not less. But we need less protest of the kind that they practice. But I'm going to stop you for a second because we're just going to take a little break and we will be back with more. Isn't this a very reasoned and sensible argument? This is the way it should be done, right? Nobody's gluing themselves to anything. Right? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Up front and bold as brass. Rev it up and ran it out. The nation's best debate. Talk Radio. Imagine having 100 chances to score a penalty. Or 100 chances to win a million. Well, lucky you. Because this Friday's Euro Millions European Millionaire Maker will have 100 millionaires guaranteed. Yep, that's 100 millionaires back of the net. Euro Millions from the National Lottery. Play on app, online and in-store. There are 100 1 million euro prizes available to be won. Camelot will top up prizes in the UK to 1 million pounds. Account terms, rules and procedures apply. Players must be 18 or over. The mouth-watering, cheesy bacon flatbread from McDonald's with two strips of sizzling beechwood smoked bacon covered in delicious melted cheese. Mmm, that is so good. And it's just 1.49. McDonald's. Breakfast done properly. Served until 11am. Price and participation may vary across restaurants. Price not applicable to delivery orders. At Lloyds Bank, we're by the side of families worrying about rising bills. I think during the winter months, it'll be really, really tough because you think, how can I cover everything if my wage isn't going up, but these bills are going up? We've got a budget for that somehow to make sure that, you know, we can afford to pay for those bills. So, yeah, it is, um, it is something that is worrying. If you're concerned about the rising cost of bills, come in and talk to us. We can help work through your monthly incomings and outgoings. Lloyds Bank, by your side. It's the Talk Talk Winter Warmer Sale, with deals hotter than a steaming cup of cocoa. Like our super-fast, reliable fibre broadband, now from just £22 a month for 24 months, with average speeds from 38 to 145 megabits per second, and award-winning customer experience. Brilliant. Deals that make sense sense. Search Talk Talk Fibre. Offers end 16th Feb. Talk Talk for everyone. 
CPI plus 3.7% annual increase from April 2022, subject to availability, 995 posts and packing T's and C's apply. Tonight's Euro Millions jackpot could make your dreams come true, but not the dream where you're being chased by thousands of geese. No, the one where you're living it up on your own tropical island. Tonight's Euro Millions jackpot is £55 million. Pounds. Euro Millions from the National Lottery. Play on app, online and in-store. Estimated jackpot, account terms, rules and procedures apply. Players must be 18 or over. Your way from driveway to motorway. Talk radio, travel update. Lancashire recovering a broken down vehicle off the M55. So a delay trying to get onto the southbound M6 at Junction 32 where one lane is closed. West Yorkshire, the M1 southbound, an accident at Wakefield, 39 to 38. Looks like at least one lane closed here. Gloucestershire, the M5 northbound. A tyre change before Junction 11A, Sirencester, and a queue around on the M25, this time clockwise, before the M4. I'm Sarah Elliott. Oh, I'm sorry, we can't offer those massages right now. A reflexologist at Jamie's Wellbeing Centre is relocating. They need to hire an extra pair of hands to ease the pressure. But we hope to take bookings again soon. Indeed can help them find great people, fast. I need Indeed. Indeed you do. Add essential questions to your job post that help screen applicants for must-have requirements. To start hiring, visit indeed.com slash try today. Talk Radio. Powered by common sense. Activated by opinion. The voice of reason. In search of the perfect debate. Free speech radio. On the app, on your smart speaker, and on the money. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the home of common sense. We are, of course, here at Talk Radio, the place where you find the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if you don't believe that, uh, just listen to Laura Dosworth. We can have opinions which differ. Uh, you don't have to fall out. You don't have to glue yourself to anything. You don't have to actually smash anything up. Uh, you can just talk about it. And sometimes you can even change each other's minds. Laura's here uh, today with us, as she is every Tuesday, telling me about the good things that are happening and the good things that are going on. So let's continue with that Sometimes theme. we get to do that. Sometimes Absolutely. things are good. And sometimes you I get... feel good about everything now, though. I feel as though, you know, like I said, the whole incident in Downing Street and the several incidents in Downing Street has taken an awful lot of power away from this government. And they now no longer have the ability or the right to impose anything on us. Yeah, well, we're being nudged back to normal. Perhaps that's something we could talk about next week because it yes. is positive. But back onto the police and protest book because I can't leave where we ended on that mm. last bit for the news where you thought you were right when. Well, you I know, am right. You're not. But, you know, <laughs> let's See, talk about. This is why we hate women because they're always telling us we're wrong. Right, that's a hate Sorry, crime. We'll that come was on just to that. a joke, by the way. But um, another thing that got voted out, which is great, was the police would have been able to stop and search people on suspicion. Um, well, even without suspicion at protests, mm. or they would be able to stop um, people and vehicles if they thought they planned to cause serious disruption. I don't think the police should be able to stop people on suspicion they might cause serious disruption when serious disruption is not defined. That basically gives them the power yes. to stop and search everybody. But they kind of have that now, don't they? I mean, they can pull you over in, in a car for any reason. If you're driving uh, in a way which is completely normal and you haven't broken any rules, you can still be pulled over by the cops if they wish to pull you over. Well, then they don't need any more of that power, do they? Possibly not. No. 
Um, they also the peers also voted for amendments to the bill, mm. which was to get rid of the conditions on noisy protests. Yeah. Now I think this is good. Now we don't all enjoy lots of noisy protests, yeah. do we? In fact, I've been at protests that I believe in, and I find the noise very irritating myself. I don't enjoy it, but this is part of the point of the I protest. I think this one it was just aimed at, at Steve Bray, wasn't it? I mean, it was basically just aimed at Steve Bray because he makes a nuisance of himself, and he's a most odious character. He really is. But unfortunately, in in a democracy, you have to live with that. We have to tolerate the. I mean, I would just have come up with a different way of dealing with him, like I'd throw a bucket of custard over him or something. As long as that's legal. Well, not it's sure. not illegal, is it, to throw custard <laughs> over anyone? They used to do it on television every Saturday morning. Stop with your custard red herrings. All right. Um, but the actually, it's a great the, idea, though. The example that came up was, and this is kind of funny, because this is what the government do. They want to piggyback on something they think will generate public outrage. And they said, what if there was an anti-vax protest outside a school that was noisy? Mm. Well, we don't really have a big problem with noisy anti-vax protests outside of school, but we also have to permit protests to be noisy. It's mm. important, otherwise you could well, also, potentially again, get rid of every protest. Again, how do you how do you define noisy? It's un it's undefined, yeah. which is dangerous, and mm. all of those things lead to too much power to the Secretary of State and you know elements of being in a police state. So. Um, also protecting the right for people to hold protests in Parliament Square. I think yeah. that's important. That's exactly the place that protests should be and well, then should be under their noses. That takes us back to Insulate Britain. If they want to protest, let them protest there. Not on the M25, not on the North Circular, you know, not in front of a train. Um, mm. And make it so that they're not disrupting people. And that's my point, really. I mean, I've got no problem with people protesting. I just think that protesting has to be uh, not about disrupting and not about making people's lives a misery and stopping ambulances from getting to, uh, to, to hospitals. Uh, that was so... They really didn't do themselves any PR no. favours then, did they? No, they really didn't. So... Altogether, well done, House of Lords. If you must be there, at least you proved your proved your worth your salt last yeah. night. So that was good. But then they have voted to make misogyny a hate crime. Right. Yeah, I struggle um, to work out in what England this one's and Wales. about. Well, it means. So does that, that mean you're you're all right in Scotland then, or is it already a hate crime there? Oh, I think it might already be a hate crime. Yeah. I'm, you're losing me. I'm not quite sure. I think it might. I mean, Scotland's like further ahead with everything like that, isn't it? Well, when you say ahead, I mean I would behind challenge you. Um, the courts now have the power to treat misogyny as an aggravating factor and yes. they can adjust sentences mm. accordingly. This, for me, is another quite tricky one, I have it is. to say. The people who are for it say you already have racial um, aggravation going on, you already have mm. homophobic um, legislation, so why not have misogynistic? And I'm, you know, you can see the logic there, but then that's why the other two are also possibly questionable because surely the offence is the offence, it's not who the victim of the offence is. Well, I think I agree with you. The thing is, there are millions of crimes committed against mm. women every year. Is it important to establish if they are rooted in hostility and hatred towards women? Yeah. Well, possibly. But the problem with defining a hate crime is it's based on subjective perception, yeah. not on the crime itself. Like you say, a crime is a crime. Yes. Does it matter what the emotion was behind it? And well, should you be punished more for committing a crime against a particular individual mm. rather than another particular individual? I, don't think that's a, I think that's wrong in law, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I'm not really comfortable with this. Part of me thinks, well, if all these other things are hate crime, why would misogyny not be a hate right. crime? 
but I don't think it's going to fix a problem where there is a culture still of hostility towards women. I don't think it's going to fix the problem. No. In fact, I think it's got the possibility to make it worse. Indeed. Because it comes down to subjective perception. So, you know, there's been discussion for about, is, is wolf whistling misogyny? Well, this is an example where misogyny is completely overused mm. and totally diluted. Yeah. It may be irritating. You know, you may not welcome it. I've been that young girl that didn't like it. No. But it's not hatred of women right. to do so. And so there's see, a real I don't danger know, of diluting I, all I this down. I would never and never have wolf whistled at a woman and wouldn't mm. ever want anybody that I was with to do it. Um, so I would consider it to be bad manners apart from anything else. Yes, but it's not misogyny. And perhaps that could be dealt with instead by mm. having a different range of offences for public harassment. Whether wolf whistling counts as public harassment or not, I don't know. Mm. So I'm, I'm worried about the uh, subjectivity of yeah. something being a hate crime. I'm not sure it tackles um, a culture of right. misogyny. I've also, to... do you want the police van sort of screeching to a halt, you know, 10 police jump out and start arresting people on a building site for whistling at a woman when down the road uh, there's a load of people, you know, glued to the uh, M25 and they can't arrest them because, you know, they want to hurt them? I'm not convinced they'll do that anyway. Mm. And is this really how you change a culture of sexism or hostility to women? I'm not sure. The other danger is that you get non-crime hate incidents yes. like Harry Miller recently. But they've all been done away with, haven't they? Hasn't that all come to a swift end? The uh, police college is having to review yes. its guidance about it, which is great. But, you know, there we had this crazy incident where um, somebody drafted what were reported to be transphobic mm. limericks. Uh, not Maybe didn't draft them. He shared them on Twitter. And that was a non-crime hate incident. It's kind of Orwellian doublespeak. Yeah. There's no well, such thing well, as a non-crime hate incident. Right. Yeah, I, I also am not really sure whether it's a good idea to widen the scope of what the police are supposed to do. Why should they also not just be... Um, dealing with the crime, but assessing what motivated mm. the crime, what emotion was behind the crime. Because I think they've got enough to do. There's enough unsolved burglaries, well, etc. Exactly. Should they also well, be like deciding what, what pernicious emotions are behind a crime? <laughs> I know. So I, I think we're kind of as one on misogyny as a hate yeah, crime, aren't we? Generally so. not necessary. But I... You know, I get it. Millions of crimes are committed against women. Yeah. And some of those are rooted but in But then misogyny. more crimes are committed against men. And we've had this debate going on for ages. But we have to stop now because we're out of time, unfortunately. You know, in fact, we're over time. So I'm getting oh, Well, I'm going eye. to glue myself okay. to this desk. Now there's very little you can do about it in law and protest. Yeah, but unfortunately, I think I should get longer you'll have found week. yourself gluing yourself to um, a desk inside of a building which is not... A public space and so therefore we can do whatever we like to get rid of it <laughs> and it won't be pretty i can tell you that uh, we'll get the stormtroopers up um lovely to see you laura thank you, you very too. much indeed for talking absolute sense as ever Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Lots going on today, plenty of people to talk to, uh, and lots of your calls to take as well. So do keep them coming in. 03444991000. We're going to be talking about the NHS vaccine mandate, uh, which is going to result in a lot of people being made redundant and fired from the NHS if the uh, if the Sajid Javid plan goes ahead. Uh, we're hearing, of course, that a lot of the restrictions are going to be lifted uh, about a week from today, if not before. We're hearing that uh, there will no longer be any sort of lock 
lockdown, certainly in England. I don't know about Wales and Scotland, but if you're in those two places, we can talk some more about that as well. Don't forget, uh, you can, of course, watch us on TV as well as listening to us. Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV Plus, Roku, YouTube. Now, Amazon Fire TV as well. It's talkradio.tv where you need to go or just download the app from the App Store. That's the Talk Radio TV app. Right now, let's talk to Kevin O'Sullivan, who is, of course, here on Talk Radio every single evening from 7 to 10 uh, midweek, sandwiched, as it were, between Jeremy Carl and James Well. Not a pleasant place to be, I'm sure, for an awful lot of people. Uh, Kevin, a very good morning to you. Hello, Mike. Now, listen, uh, there's a lot of royal stuff to get into with you. But first of all, I just wanted to ask you about um, the Treasury, because apparently they've decided they've given out so much money to fraudsters that they're just going to not bother trying to collect it. They're calling it £4.3 billion of public cash. These are fraudsters who might have set up companies that previously didn't exist, um, people who basically took business loans and then didn't return them, people who claimed for furlough for people that they didn't employ. I mean, it seems an incredible waste of money, considering especially what I'm being told by some friends of mine in the hospitality business, they're now being chased rather aggressively by the tax people to pay back some of the money that they were loaned. I think it's symptomatic of the kind of panicky response that this government had uh, to the entire COVID crisis, panicking at the beginning by slamming us into lockdowns, then more lockdowns, then more lockdowns. We now know, looking back, that lockdowns do not and did not work. Uh, the furlough scheme, they went at that. Uh, I mean, the furlough scheme, I think, and the uh, saving of businesses was the right thing to do, uh, but they went at it in far too panicky a way. I mean, I heard a story of a guy uh, not far from me who set up 50 companies and claimed thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds from the government right. uh, for each one. And he made like half a million pounds. Uh, and they never once uh, looked into the fact that all of his companies were set up in the last five minutes. Yeah. I mean, that should have set off alarm bells, shouldn't it? That's what they were doing. They were just going, oh, yes, here's money, here's money, here's money. And a load of sharks cashed in on it. And sadly, I think uh, their decision not to investigate is probably the right one because they'll never find these people. Well, no. I mean, one of the things that I was told about uh, the HGV crisis that we supposedly were living through, which didn't seem to be a crisis for very long, like most crises nowadays. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons for that was that an awful lot of lorry drivers who were working in the UK claimed a load of loans and claimed a load of money in order to not work and then scarpered off back to some country in Europe where they were also based um, and have never returned. And, and I mean, you're talking about people that took maybe 25, 30,000 quid, maybe a little bit more, not massive amounts of money, but multiplied by a few hundred thousand is not bad. Uh, not to mention uh, the uh, people who... Uh, made millions and millions of pounds by making a couple of phone calls to set up PPE deals. Uh, you know, the money that this government just handed out like confetti without any consideration in uh, the full force of a full-blown panic uh, is ridiculous. And of course, this will all come out in the mother of all public inquiries, which is hurtling down the track uh, into the COVID crisis and the government's handling of it. Absolutely right. Speaking of which, I've just been sent a picture of Matt Hancock, who's apparently been captured swimming this morning in the Serpentine. Um, I, what I didn't know uh, was that apparently he had COVID for the second time last week. So the former Secretary of State for Health. Uh, now, I didn't even know you were allowed to swim in the Serpentine, are you? I think you can, uh, but you know what he's like. He likes break. He's always breaking rules. You yeah. Know? 
Oh, no, oh, he's, 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 <laughs> it is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to talk to you about Boris simply because, you know, we've sort of said everything there is to be said and we may have things to say to each other later on. Let's talk a little bit about the BBC instead, which is a pet subject of yours. I was listening to your conversation with uh, David Mellor last night, uh, mm. which was very good. He's, he's become he's one of those guys that's sort of become a bit like, um, uh, I don't know, Serene Duncan Smith, far more sensible since he'd left uh, politics. Well, I, I think he was always a very bright guy, but politicians are always hamstrung yeah. by their need to be like kind of loyal donkeys to whoever their boss is. Uh, and that's why they can all seem so ridiculous, like all these ministers coming out in the media right now to say that wasn't a party. That was a work event. Right. Like, what do you think we are, stupid? I know. Uh, so, but, so, of course, David Mellor is out of those restrictions now. He uh, can speak without fear or favour, and he certainly does, and he has a lot of contempt for Boris's regime. Uh, and uh, he wrote a brilliant piece in the Mail on Sunday saying, when I was culture secretary or the equivalent thereof, I think they called it broadcasting minister then, uh, he uh, fervently backed the BBC, thought it was a great thing, always defended the uh, BBC licence fee and what he wrote on Sunday was I now realise I was wrong yes uh, and the beat and the licence fee has to go absolutely. which absolutely is right I was watching for my sins the six o'clock news last night believe it or not um, I do occasionally just keep an eye on it and they actually had a report about climate change right which started with this graph about how terrible the, uh, the the temperature was going to be and how it was going to rise. And the opening gambit from the reporter was, this is very unlikely to happen. But, and you're going, it's supposed to be news you're doing. You know, this is not, you know, some kind of, you know, let's do a predictive story about what could happen if something else happens. And it was all sort of in the wake of the underground or the undersea volcano over in Tonga. And it was just nonsense. They said, well, it could be that, you know, we will have temperatures in London nine degrees higher than they were normally. And yeah. I looked at my, I looked at my uh, barometer and it said it was zero. So I thought so it would be nine then. Yeah, so well, you don't knock the story down in the first sentence, do you? I mean, when you were... Well, only at the BBC, or, apparently. Or you're writing a story. You don't say, uh, before I tell you this story, I must tell you it's not very good. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but that's the BBC for you. And uh, no doubt uh, they're looking at ways of blaming the Tonga volcano uh, onto Brexit. Yes, no doubt. Finally, let's talk about Harry and Andrew. Uh, big uh, debates going on all over the country about whether uh, Prince, if Prince Andrew still gets the royal protection from the police, surely Prince Harry should get it as well. I disagree with that. Uh, more importantly, it looks as though the Queen uh, has now sort of more or less disowned both of them, isn't going to give them the Platinum Jubilee medal that they would otherwise have got. And slightly more disturbing that Prince Andrew actually has a pillow on his bed inscribed with the words Daddy. Well, you know, this thing about the teddy bears, apparently when he was uh, a fully grown adult before he was married and all that and living at Buckingham Palace, that his private quarters, the bed was covered in hundreds of teddy bears, which had to be arranged in a meticulous order. And if servants uh, got that order wrong, he would shout and scream and have a tantrum. Uh, he's got this obsession with teddy bears. Uh, there are teddy bears at his home sitting in big chairs. Uh, and, and it sort of feeds into the suspicion that this is a man child. 
old. Yes. This is a man who has never properly grown up. Bitty. He's been cosseted and mollycoddled by royal life, and he doesn't quite have the brains to emerge from that. And is now is now just a child yeah. struggling in an adult world. And we can see uh, where that's landed him, can't we? I mean, it really is quite an extraordinary state of affairs. But are you one of those who thinks that the Harry story is simply a ruse to make them uh, say eventually, oh, I'm sorry, we can't come back to Britain now because it's not safe? I mean, they live in one of the most dangerous countries in the world where you can get shot uh, just going shopping, you know? I think there's uh, there may be on Harry's part a bit of emotional blackmail. Hey, Granny, uh, make this happen for me, or you'll never see your uh, great grandchildren. Uh, but more to the point, I, I uh, sense the heavy hand of Meghan in all this. It's all about status. Uh, she wants a proper police protection squad when she comes here uh, to make them look like proper royals. No, oh, yeah. Of course, they can't be that because they're not proper royals anymore. Uh, they are not HRH. They're not royal highnesses. Uh, and nor, of course, uh, is Prince Andrew. So there's a question mark about his royal protection as well. Why should we pay for these people if they're not proper members of the royal family? It's our money, and I don't think we should. Simple no. as that. No, I think that's absolutely right. And as the money is becoming less and less um, prevalent and available, then surely to heavens, you know, um, the last thing that we should be doing is saying to Prince Harry, well, of course, you're no longer in the royal family, but here's a load of money to look after you just as if you were. That doesn't that doesn't add up to me. Yeah, uh, it's a vexatious uh, threat to Sue. It really is. Uh, and just causing problems for no real reason. And, and, and I would say, and I think a lot of people in Britain think this, hey, Harry, uh, here's an idea. Just don't bother ever coming back to Britain ever again. No. You, your wife, your kids, stay where you are because we don't care. But then I feel really sorry for the Queen, for Prince Charles. Uh, there's this very sad story that Charles has said, Harry, when you come with your kids, please stay with us at Highgrove. Mm. So there's this family thing uh, going on as well. So I feel sorry uh, for uh, Prince Charles and the Queen and the rest of the family who want to see Harry and Meghan's kids. Uh, and Harry, in a sense, it seems like he's kind of trying to blackmail them with that. If you don't give me police protection, I'm not coming. It's an unpleasant situation. It really is. Uh, and very sad, really. Terribly as well. dysfunctional as well, uh, which yeah. we, I suppose, have come to expect from them. Yeah, that's uh, the royal family for you. Yeah, well, Nothing exactly right. Uh, now you're back at seven o'clock tonight what you got for us uh well uh i'm going to be asking all the questions that you've been asking you know uh I'm, I, this government i mean sue gray's investigation if she turns around to us and says that wasn't a party it was a work event uh this is getting seriously orwellian mm. every person in the country we're not stupid that was a party that was a drinks party bring your own bottle uh enjoy the lovely weather that was not a work event no uh now if if it turns out that uh boris uh knew that then he's in deep trouble but come on come on boris do you really think so he he went back to number 10 what he's saying is at number 10 downing street he happened to glance into the garden uh saw a load of people ho holding drinks drinking away eating crisps not forgetting the trestle tables the table and said that's a work event yeah you know this you know, it's it's Orwellian. Yeah. It's, it's Alice in Wonderland. It's through the looking glass. Who do you think we are, stupid? Yeah. If 
we were dealing in the truth, then Boris is in terminal trouble. If he manages to uh, project the utter pretense that he really didn't think this was a party, then he survives. But what kind of a country do we become? Yeah. Some kind of weird banana republic. But the problem for, for him, Kevin, I think, is that he traps himself because what he's done is he trapped himself initially by saying that he was disgusted to discover via Allegra Stratton's video that there were even parties being held. Yeah. Um, he then comes in and suddenly remembers that he was at one but says he didn't think it was a party. So now he's stuck because he can't say those two things and then come out and apologise for the fact that it was a party. You just didn't know that it was. So, I mean, he's in all sorts of trouble. And I think he just should do the decent thing and walk away, shouldn't he? Yeah, well, I think uh, Andrew Bridgen, your excellent guest earlier on, uh, made the salient point. Either Boris is telling the truth and he thought this was a work event. I mean, what kind of, have you ever been at a work event that involved standing outside in the sunshine drinking gin and tonic? No. I haven't. No. Nor has anyone else. But... Uh, either Boris is telling the truth about that or Dominic Cummings is and Dominic Cummings says that he has evidence uh, he can prove that he told Boris you better be careful about this party this is all wrong Uh, in other words Boris did have prior knowledge about it Dominic Cummings says he waved that aside and said it's fine. If Dominic Cummings is proved to be telling the truth, uh, then it's not a question of whether or not you or I or anyone else thinks that Boris should go. He must go because Mm. that means he lied to Parliament. So it's he said, she said. Uh, Did Boris tell the truth or did Dominic tell the truth? And if it's Dominic, Boris is gone. End of. I think that's right. Kevin O'Sullivan back at 7 o'clock tonight right here on Talk Radio 7 to 10 every single weekday night. Don't miss it. It's a great show. Uh, We'll be back. Coming up very shortly, uh, we will be, of course, talking to the doctor who challenged Sajid Javid and we might have another look at that video of when he did it at King's College Hospital. Dr Steve James. This is Talk Radio. Mike Graham speaking common sense unto the nation on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are here with you, of course, until one o'clock and we've got plenty of time to take your calls on a whole manner of different things. We've got uh, a prime minister under siege. We've got Dominic Cummings, his former advisor, uh, saying that he lied to Parliament, uh, which would be a resigning offence. We've got a whole raft of different things going on uh, with the police and crime bill uh, chucked out by the House of Lords last night, which is basically going to mean that there are no extra um, precautions that can be put on anybody who's protesting against anything. Uh, I don't think that's a good idea. Many of you will disagree. Laura Dodsworth was one of them. In this hour, uh, we are joined by Dr. Steve James, consultant anaesthetist at King's College Hospital. You might remember uh, Dr. Steve was the guy who confronted Sajid Javid, uh, or didn't so much confront him, but answered a question that Sajid Javid, the Secretary of State for Health, asked him about what do you think about this vaccine mandate, which of course they said they wouldn't do, but now they are doing. uh, And they're about to fire a bunch of people from the NHS, which is already short of staff, because they won't be vaccinated. Dr. Steve is one of those people. Uh, We're going to get his side of the story. And we're going to find out as well how he's been treated by the medical establishment and what's really going on inside of the NHS and in those COVID wards. Because we don't always hear uh, what I would call uh, the unvarnished truth. You're going to hear it right here uh, on Talk Radio because you know that's where we tell you uh, it's the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So uh, keep your ears open. Watch us as well on TV. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. 
the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say uh, it's time to welcome Dr. Steve James. Steve, thank you very much for coming oh, no, in, for, uh, for joining us. There's so much to talk about, really. Um, first of all, I suppose we should start with how it was that you came to be uh, working in King's College Hospital on the COVID wards and what that's actually been like for you as, a, as an individual. Yeah, well, my background was as being an anaesthetist, but when the um, pandemic first sort of struck, um, we were asked who would go in and help support the ITUs with the increase in numbers. Um, I volunteered then and have been working almost solely on COVID-based ITUs uh, since then. Right. And has King's College Hospital been pretty much at the forefront? We know that Guy's and St Thomas's, I mean, which are just around here with us. I mean, I walk past Guy's every single morning and St Thomas's is where the Prime Minister was taken, of course, that, that night when many people thought, my goodness me, I mean, is he going to come out in the morning? Yeah. So King's has had a, a very high number of patients uh, come in with uh, COVID-19. Our ITUs... Uh, uh, increased many fold in size. Uh, the acuity of the patients who come into King's is particularly high compared with the rest of the nation. Um, so people were at the forefront of it. Yeah, it's a very difficult disease, it seems to me, to kind of figure out, especially for people like myself who are, you know, lay people who are not medically qualified, because it seems to affect very many different people in very many different ways. We get statistics which are thrown at us, not so much now as, as, they, as they were, but we still get a daily kind of tally of how many people have died, how many people have been infected. People argue about whether we're testing too many people. Mm -hmm. Others say that actually, you know, if you were not over the age of 80, you were pretty much OK. There weren't that many deaths. I mean, what's your take on the way that it's been presented to the British public, if you like? So... Um I understand the initial reaction uh, of concern with numbers going up and the necessity to change the way the NHS was running in order to cope with the numbers people were presenting. Um, and it's been a, a, there's been a huge shift required for that. But I believe we're now into a different stage and I think we need to look at how the rules now reflect the current situation mm. on the ground. I mean, was there ever a time when you were working when you thought, Christ, we're gonna, this is just going to be a disaster. We're overwhelmed. We can't deal with it. We've got people in ambulances outside. We haven't got enough room inside. Was it, was it ever like that? King's was pretty dynamic in the way it adapted um, to the situation. Um, and I'm not a spokesman for King's, but I saw uh, a brilliant team of people um, always finding the next ward, the next space, the next oxygen supply. Um, what I was very conscious of at the time, and it's sort of come to bear through some conversations, is the uh, weight put on the nursing staff, um, who uh, even some junior members of staff from critical care backgrounds, people without a critical care background, were drafted in in order to help. And they were uh, quite heavily burdened with the, the amount of care they had to deliver. And that's that simply was simply very, very tough on, on a number of them. Mm. And we saw at the beginning an awful lot of people talking and the reason I ask it, the, the question in this way is because it's always difficult because there are political people within the medical establishment, the BMA, you know, whenever I hear them speak, I'm never sure they're speaking completely and utterly candidly about the situation. You know, they're mm. speaking from their perspective. Um, an awful lot of people that I would suggest were working in ICUs as a matter of choice were complaining that it was horrible, that it was awful, that they were seeing people dying. To which I would always say, well, you work in, a, in an intensive care unit of a hospital. Isn't that what people go in there to do? Yeah, it is what you, get, you go in there to do, to, to look after people in those situations. But we're used to a certain standard of care, a certain ratio, for example, of uh, nurses to uh, patients as a sort of very basic point. Mm. And the usual thing in ITU is it's one nurse to one patient. Right. Well, during the pandemic, it was often stretched to two, three and sometimes four patients yeah. per nurse. That's in incredibly hard to be able to deliver 
the right care that you know those patients need. Right. And of course, at the beginning, in the first sort of months of 2020, uh, when the first lockdown happened and you were treating people, there were no vaccines at that point. So it was a sort of um, dangerous occupation, perhaps, for you. I mean, I know that an awful lot of people were worried about COVID. They didn't know what it could do to them. They didn't know whether they could... Um, pass it on to elderly relatives which is why they all behaved in a particular way and they all did kind of adhere to the lockdown was there any point at your at which you thought I'm actually putting myself in physical danger here um I didn't feel afraid of Covid myself um uh I moved my family away from uh where I was living because we'd heard from uh colleagues in Italy that they were self-isolating from their families because it was so contagious um uh, but what I heard very early on was how it's affecting the elderly and how it's affecting those with comorbidities. Yes. I started watching and looking at who came through the door. Um, maybe because I came to ITU with a, a new set of eyes, I was you know, trying to get my feet on the ground and, and see what was going on. Mm. But I've been watching and looking and I haven't seen a single patient turn up in intensive care who hasn't got comorbidities right. at King's. And, and I haven't and come it, across a colleague who's, who, who's seen one as well. And that would, and then that's one of the things that I think a lot of people have got issues with, uh, with the way that this, the statistics have been rolled out, where you know Chris Whitty at times would make it seem as though everyone was in danger and everyone was at the same risk, when that was clearly not true. I mean, in terms of the numbers of people who have actually died from COVID, having not been tested positive in hospital, having gone in with something else... We still don't really know the true figure on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult number to to obtain. So there's this process of looking at who's died within 28 days of a, of a positive PCR test. And some of those people won't have died from COVID. But there will be some people who have died after day 28 and will have had a COVID-related death. Mm. So there's going to be a bit of balancing there. But there's a death certification program uh, um, uh, system. And on that... Uh, you know, the junior doctors, usually guided by a consultant, look at what they put down on a death certificate. Right. And uh, what I've noticed is that it's quite often that, that uh, um, uh, we miss as medics um, uh, low level obesity. Um, so obesity where the BMI is a few, a few points over 30. And we certainly wouldn't document a patient as being overweight. I think it's become common in hospital to only mention obesity when the obesity is, is really quite dramatic. Mm. And so, I mean, overall, would you say that the vast number of people in your experience who have died from COVID, um, whether or not they caught it in hospital or not, were older, more obese, likely to have suffered from um, something else? Because if they weren't any of those things, it's a much smaller number, right? Indeed. So if you look at, and that was my experience completely, and if you look at the CDC, then the director stated recently that 75% of deaths in the US were with patients who had four or more comorbidities. Right. So I have that next other 25%, a good chunk of what three, a good chunk of what two, and some will have one, and a very small number will have zero. Mm. I was looking through the statistics this morning from the Office of National Statistics and trying to work out how many patients have died roughly in different age groups uh, per hospital. Mm. And we've got about uh, 950 to 1,000 hospitals, I think, in England and Wales. Right. And there have been about 4,000 deaths in the age group under 65 mm. who don't have any comorbidities. If you look at how many of those have probably have occurred in the under 50s, 
then it's about one patient per average who's died in each hospital. And I think over the whole period. So, sorry, um, I should state that uh, up until September 2021, which okay. is the last date at which the statistics are, right. are available. Well, that's well is, over a year, well though, over, isn't it? A and year that's and a half. the two main peaks. Yeah, which is an extraordinary number. Which I think, if we'd known earlier, would have been much more informative than than, than what we were told about. Because we've now been told that the CDC has, for example, removed the use of PCR testing because we've heard an awful lot of the testing that is done uh, is providing us with a false picture of more people with COVID than actually there are. Yeah, because if you test with a PCR test on an asymptomatic group of people, yeah, then what's called the false positive rate, which is how often it shows a positive test mm. even when it's not true. It's a very small percentage, but if you apply that to a large population of people who are asymptomatic, you'll get a certain still significant number of people who test positive. Mm. Out of that same population, the people who are asymptomatic and have actually got COVID are smaller. Right. So if you're asymptomatic and you test positive, the data I've been shown shows that you're more likely to not have COVID than have it. Well, exactly right. I mean, I actually asked the question about probably a year and a half ago. You know, if you were explaining to somebody who'd come here from Mars, you know, we've just tested that guy over there uh, with symptoms. Uh, we're sorry, with symptoms of COVID, and it's tested positive. We've just tested this other guy with no symptoms of COVID, and it's tested positive. What are the chances that the test is wrong, and he doesn't have COVID, rather than the fact that he has COVID, and he doesn't have any symptoms? Because the logical answer to that is, well, he probably doesn't have it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what the statistics show. For, so is for it possible that asymptomatic COVID doesn't exist? Um... It's possible, right? When you say it doesn't exist, you mean that the person hasn't got the virus in their body? Well, I mean, the, the fact that we are told that you can have COVID but have no symptoms. Well, I think the thing to say is the difference between having the virus and having COVID. So COVID-19 is, is the disease process caused by the virus. Mm. So you can be a carrier for the virus. Okay. If, you've got the, if you're a carrier for the virus, have you got COVID-19? No, not necessarily. Right. But you could still infect somebody else with it, I suppose. Yeah. Right. And so when did you get COVID and how bad was it for you? Um, well, over the whole period of the pandemic, uh, I've had one fever which lasted for an evening, went to bed, thought, oh, I've got it now, woke up in the morning and was fine. Mm. And then the following week, I tested with a PCR and was negative. Uh, I don't know when I've actually had it, right. um, but I did an antibody test before Christmas and I've got antibodies. So I've been exposed and I've got... And the government, of course, have been very sort of strange about antibody testing, haven't they? I mean, I did an interview with Sajid Javin and I said, why are you not more reliant upon antibody testing particularly in places like care homes and he said well the trouble is that you can't really measure the size of the viral load because it's not possible to know how that person got infected and if they did have covid how strong the the viral load was and it was kind of like we don't really want to know about uh, that, about that why do you think they're not doing it i think um the benefit of the vaccine for people who are at risk of covid and the reduction it's brought about in the number of patients who are dying from COVID and having serious disease from COVID. And it's a massively important point. It's not to be ignored, but it's become the sole focus of the way the, pro, the, the, the response to uh, COVID is, is being delivered. So people are, are not seeing the wood for the trees anymore. They're just seeing vaccines worked really well in this group. So we must do more vaccination and, and, and more vaccination must be better. Mm. And if we vaccinate the NHS staff and if we vaccinate this group or that group, or we put pressures on people. So if I think about my, my friends who are not medics, uh, I don't know a single one who wanted 
the vaccine. Most people took the vaccine because they felt on a balance of shall I have it, shall I not, uh, in particular because they want to be able to travel. Uh, they took the vaccine for that reason. Right. And of course, now they're seeing a change in policy in which it might be necessary to take three vaccines rather than two and then maybe four and then maybe five and I mean that I think for a lot of people is slightly worrying that's why I think the booster rollout has been slower because some people are going well hang on a minute you know you told me the first two were going to be enough and now you're saying they're not but what's the reason you haven't been vaccinated is it because you fear that it might not be good for you or is it simply that you don't think you need it well it's, it's a combination of things so uh you know when you make a decision about a medical intervention with the patient you're kind of weighing up three things one is um, the risk of, of having the treatment or not having the treatment. One is the benefit of having the, uh, the treatment. And the other thing is how you as an individual weigh those things up. Mm. So for me, I'd rather in general go for uh, a natural health approach uh, for myself rather than uh, give some sort of reliance towards uh, a pharmaceutical intervention. I don't see the risk as being significant for me having uh, the virus. I had it at some point, barely noticed I've had it. Um, and what's the risk? Well, it's not the same as having some saline injected into my the back of my arm. There is a chance. I, I've got colleagues who've had significant medical problems as a re result of the vaccine, and we haven't got 20 years of data mm. uh, on it. So, yeah, it just, just doesn't make any sense. And it has caused it. injuries to an awful lot of people. And one of the questions I often ask is, why do we not have enough data on the kinds of people who are becoming injured by the vaccine because there must be something they have in common i don't think it's just a random situation where some people are allergic to it or some people react badly to it they ought to presumably be able to collect data to say well these people who suffered as a result of being vaccinated have something in common could we not see those um, data well th there are some questions about whether the data is being produced uh, and made available quickly enough it's not an area i particularly focused on but mm. to me it seems that we knew COVID was going to take this kind of uh, course uh, for, and for, for example there was going to be questions about death rates uh, from COVID from the beginning. We knew that if a vaccine was developed people would want to know nuanced data about the side effect profile so they could make an informed decision. Um, so I'm surprised that there hasn't been a greater process because if it's as safe as we are generally led to believe and it, it is a safe vaccine in the sense that the chances of you having a serious outcome that's negative is much, much lower than the positive. Mm. Yeah? But that doesn't mean for everyone they'll, they'll, they'll be better Which with is it. why it would be helpful if, if there is some kind of commonality to people becoming damaged by it or, or, or reacting badly to it, that we should know. Absolutely. And then you can, then make, a can make a decision. Like, decision. for example, with, with children um, who we were told were never going to need to be vaccinated, but we now are told should be. Um, I, you know, For parents wanting to make that decision, it's very tough because you say, well, hang on, how do I know that it's not going to have a bad effect on, on my 12-year-old or my 13-year-old? And nobody will tell you. Yeah. So, I mean, from what I've seen, the children who've, who've done unwell uh, with COVID have been children who've had medical uh, a medical history, who've got uh, obesity, have got other complications. Mm. Um, and we've always seen that there's a huge differential in the age profile. The average person who dies with COVID is 83 years old. The average person who dies in this country is 82. Mm. And obviously, February is looming very large. Um, I've been given a piece of information in which it says that GP practices are now going to be able to basically access vaccination information on their employees. And if you have um, an employee in your practice who is not vaccinated, you might be asked to provide a different exit and entrance door for them to come in and out. Are you worried that the NHS is kind of becoming a bit Orwellian here? 
Well, a, a separate entrance would be fairly minor compared with being fired. Um, so, you know, if we haven't, if I haven't proved my vaccination status as being vac mm. as being double vaccinated by the end of March, I'm going to be fired. Yes. Is it only the case, though, that if, if you're frontline, so if you're in the back office somewhere in a hospital, you're OK? So admin staff, um, uh, people who come onto the ward, um, people who work in kitchens, mm. uh, they're also going to be fired. Right. And so how did you come to be in that same space as Sajid Javid that day? Because that's a question a lot of people have asked me, because, yeah. of course, they think that there was some kind of mad conspiracy going on was it was it pre-arranged no i mean it was my standard um day to be on one i was starting a, a week of uh, on calls on, on the intensive care unit um we'd come in as usual had the handover from the night team gone to our sort of bed meeting and at the bed meeting it was announced that Sajid Javid was making a visit and he was going to make a visit to one of the other critical care units and then come to my unit mm. so you know uh when when he was announced that he was arriving I was there. I met him with my clinical lead as he came into the unit. We had a brief conversation about how it was during the pandemic. And then he walked over to talk to the nurses. Right. And they seemed almost kind of slightly embarrassed about the question that he asked them was, how do you feel about, you know, the vaccine mandate? And they all looked to me as though they would have said what you said, but didn't want to. I don't want to comment on, on how my colleagues felt. I think that when you... Re when you review the video yourself of their responses, people make their own minds. Right. And would you say that there are quite a lot of people then in your um, knowledge, I'm not going to say in your particular hospital, um, who have not been vaccinated and who will be out of a job then? Yes. Those are the, I've been contacted by a lot of people over the last uh, 10 days mm. um, from all over the country. Uh, uh, a lot of people are saying, uh, the majority of people are saying they're going to quit because they can't stand this idea. Right. Uh, and a few are saying they're going to reluctantly take the vaccine because they cannot see another way to pay the bills. And if that is the case, presumably all hospitals will be affected by people who are no longer working there. Yeah, so w we are looking at, uh, I think it's about 80,000 members of staff, about 5% roughly of the NHS workforce. Uh, it also, there's, we're not talking about those uh, members of staff who work in other CQC institutions like private institutions because mm. it accounts for them as well. Right. Um, and they're going to be out of a job. We've currently got a job vacancy list of 100,000 uh, people. So we're almost doubling the vacancy list overnight. Right. And is there any chance you think that they'll reverse this policy that they will suddenly go, actually, we just really wanted everyone to get vaccinated and that was why we did it? Well, I think if uh, if people are asking what the public uh, think about it, yeah, and, and you know, the, the popularity of a policy uh, often, often counts, it often carries a lot of weight. Um, I'm seeing a hugely positive or hugely negative response towards the mandate itself and a hugely positive response to those of us who are speaking out mm. against it. Because, you know, the public can, can make sense of, you know, is it a good idea in a health crisis to sack 5% of your workforce? No, it doesn't seem to be. But are you saying that you've actually been more um, encouraged by the reaction to what you did rather than discouraged? I mean, what was the King's College's reaction, for example? So um, from the, the management at King's, I've had no influence and uh, nothing negative. Uh, there was, you know, normal conversation after I'd had the conversation with Sajid Javid, so I've not got any mm. bugbear there. Okay. Um, amongst my colleagues, you know, by speaking out, uh, I represented a group of staff uh, across the country who haven't been heard their voice heard. 
So I was representing them, but I was not representing my department. Mm. So people saw me as a representative of the department because I was, you know, in in uniform at the hospital with my name underneath uh, and King's College Hospital. But I wasn't speaking on behalf of the department. So I can understand that my colleagues felt that what I'd said wasn't fair. Yeah. And I think the main concern was that I put across a a, uh, a point of view that didn't convey my own feelings and their feelings about the benefits of vaccines. Right. So you weren't a pariah. I mean, because you, you know, as well as I do, I don't probably have to name who they are. There were quite a few sort of active, shall we say, medics on social media who are very pro-vaccination, very pro-lockdown, mm -hmm. very anti-anybody being a dissenter from that view. And that mm -hmm. would include me and presumably would include you. So you haven't been turned into a sort of, you know, hate figure by the medical establishment. Well... I think I've been that for some people, but I don't tend to, to look through those channels. Um, for me, I've got to look to myself as to whether I'm true to myself and stick with my own mm. opinions rather than you know be worried about it's what people It's a fine but very old-fashioned view these days. Because for a lot of people, it's been quite difficult, I suppose. I mean, many people wouldn't have the courage to, to stand up and say what you said simply because they'd be worried about the consequences. Yeah. Um, for me, it was just a question of here's an opportunity to, to say something um, I, I don't mind going on the record mm. I'll do it and uh, as a result of course the Daily Mail uh, did a big piece on you and your wife saying that you're all a bit odd mm. um, we apparently some... she's involved in yoga yes, I something know. they don't encourage at the Daily Mail no, I don't, don't know whether the journalist has read the rest of the Daily Mail or not. But, uh, um, yeah, we also do terrible things like cycling at the weekend. Yeah, yeah well, I'm against that, obviously. And I mean, I've been on holiday as well. So Have you? Uh, yeah. Goodness gracious. Well, where did you go that you couldn't uh, we could get Danish, in? A Danish island, apparently. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Excellent. So, I mean, as far as your kind of um, next move, I know you also have a private practice. And, again, some people, when I said you were coming on, were like, well, he's just going to go off and work in his private practice. He doesn't care about the NHS. Well... Most people in the NHS, as far as I know, seem to have a private practice of some kind or another. So I'm not going to castigate you for that. But if you are out of a job, will you have that private practice to fall back on? I'm not allowed to, work, to do private practice if this mandate comes in. Oh, the so you, so you can't actually work in the system no. at all? The mandate stops anyone who's working in a CQC-regulated institution. That mm. includes all private hospitals. Right. So, so what will not you... be able to do any patient-facing work. So, if you, so what will you do then? How will you make a living? There are different options for me. One is to look for employment in Wales, Scotland or the Republic of Ireland, mm. where at present there aren't vaccine mandates for staff. The other option is for me to work online. So uh, one of the things I do at King's, apart from critical care, is I run what's called an exercise and tolerance clinic. So I look at patients who've got unexplained breathlessness and fatigue, um, and I look at uh, the, the wide range of issues behind why they've got their problems. That can be sleep, that can be nutrition, that can be stress. That can be childhood trauma, uh, and and that can be their sort of current exercise capacity. Mm. So I exercise test those patients. That I don't need to be present for those tests to be done, but I can review the reports. And currently, I conduct that clinic uh, on the telephone, and sometimes do it as, as a video. Okay. So potentially, I can still do some of that. And if you're not vaccinated, right, mm -hmm. you are sometimes painted by some politicians and some medical people as being a danger to the rest of society mm. because you don't care. Mm. What do you say to those people? I, I would say that we, as a society, have, have chosen to, to live where freedom and, 
choice are very, very, very highly valued. Um, you know, if, if you if you walk through London, you'll see people driving cars, and cars produce produ- pollution, and pollution uh, causes in cities deaths. Not for much longer if Sadiq Khan continues with his policies. No, way. so so that then you know maybe it's better that we all don't drive cars because we also then are potentially harming other people. Mm. So there's lots of things that that we do do that we've accepted as society. Now. You know, we've the. I think what you're starting to point towards is this transmission question, and the studies aren't there within healthcare settings to show uh, what the difference is. There's a, stu- a big study from the Cleveland Clinic, which is the biggest uh, sort of hospital system in the U.S., and they showed that in doctors and nurses who'd previously had immunity, there wasn't any difference in transmission between those people and people who'd been vaccinated. It's not to say that a vaccine wouldn't again change it. But the the thing is, is that if you've got symptoms and you're a healthcare worker, you don't go to work. So the vast majority of transmissions are not going to happen by people not coming in when they're symptomatic. Mm. You then wear a mask. If you then think you're, you know, if you're on a on a with a vulnerable patient, you're going to wear a better a better mask. You're going to have good ventilation. You're going to keep a distance from the patient. There are so many factors involved. Yes, I've always thought as well that no matter what people do, the virus spreads in the way that the virus spreads. It's not. Uh, there isn't evidence I would suggest that if you've stopped, um, you know, if you protect yourself and if you wear PPE and you go into a hospital with COVID or you don't spread it or you do spread it, it just does spread. It seems to spread an awful lot in hospital. It will, it will spread eventually. So whether, you, whether it spreads with you or later on is the, is the question. Mm. Is, is, am I able to not be the person who partic- I personally pass it on to you, but you will get it from somewhere else. Mm. So there's, uh, you know, most of us think that the lockdown is what caused... Uh, the sort of dropping off of the the curve, but the drop off in the curve happened before lockdown happened. So you know the infection rate numbers were already dropping. Mm. So we think that lockdown happened and that brought that about, but that's just an association in time. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, listen, Dr. Steve James, thank you so much for coming Thanks in. Thanks very much, Mike. Uh, perhaps we'll get you in again because there's obviously more to say and more to be said. Big and topics. we'd love to hear from people uh, as to what you thought of what Dr. Steve had to say. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.